For right now, if you will turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Let's stand as we open God's Word together. As we've studied Matthew's Gospel, we got through chapter 8, then we came back to chapter 1 for the Christmas season, and uh, chapter 2 we're looking at this morning. Matthew records something that the other Gospels do not really hit on, and that is the story of the wise men, or the Magi, who came several months at least after Christ was born, but it still fits into our Christmas narrative. And so let's begin with verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes, Of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, For you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. I can hear a collective, yeah, right, (laughs) in the congregation this morning. When they heard the king, verse 9, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being secretly warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. Father, we thank you for the story of the wise men. Lord, I thank You that You also reveal to us Herod's response in this story. Lord, I pray that You would take this story. Lord, I pray that You would take these words of admonishment as well as words of warning and speak to our hearts and challenge us which response to avoid and which response to embrace this day, this Christmas season, and throughout our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. I printed this story off of Fox News' uh, website. It says, in the town of Brookville, Indiana, we find the latest to become entangled, or this town is the latest to become entangled in a dispute with the Freedom From Religion Foundation. The atheist group is demanding that a 50-year-old nativity scene be removed from outside a local courthouse. The foundation claims the religious display cannot be on public property. The group has reportedly been threatening a lawsuit against the town for years, but residents and officials are fighting back. The commissioners said they have been ignoring the letters and instead rallying and fighting to keep the nativity there. 
quote, if people don't like the look of it, I think they can look the other way. Or don't look at it at all. It's been a tradition here for many, many years, and I hope hope it is for many, many more years. I think we deserve the right to put up what the community wants, and I don't think anyone else should tell us what to do, says a Brookville resident, Wayne Monroe. He goes on to say, I don't understand why people want to take away our love of Christ. It is His birthday. We need to celebrate that and remember that. Another resident, Ron Anderson, said, when you start taking rights away, we lose track of who we are as American citizens. I think it's going to take a lot more than some outfit from Wisconsin to have it removed, Monroe said. Another citizen talking to Franklin County Commissioner uh, Scott McDonough and a resident of Brookville said on Fox and Friends, McDonough said the town believes the First Amendment guarantees the right to express religion freely. McDonough goes on to say that the freedom of uh, from, excuse me, it's not freedom of religion, notice it's freedom from religion foundation, is misreading the law, noting that it is an open forum outside the courthouse and anybody can add a display of different religion or, or, or Jewish star of David or anything like that. He also had a message for other towns that might be facing similar threats like this group. He said, stop letting them bully you. They go around threatening to sue municipalities and other government agencies if they permit any type of religious display. They use the misconceptions about the separation of church and state to make everyone afraid of getting into the middle of a lawsuit when the Constitution does protect you, he said. I think this is uh, very interesting, and we can understand a little bit in our area about how they feel about this, but I'm glad this town has said, you know what? Bring it on. We're going to fight. The nativity is all about Christmas. Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus, and we're going to take a stand for this. I was encouraged about this town's response, but I was also reminded that this is happening all over our nation this time of year, and I was reminded that Jesus didn't come to this world to win any popularity contests. See, honestly, it doesn't matter if a particular town or city or county or state or nation desires Christ to be made known, the fact of the matter is, Christ is going to be made known. He said, this gospel shall be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. And so as we lead up to the last days, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to go out to all nations. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's what He was all about. Seeking and saving the lost. Many will give Him a royal reception and say Christ is welcome in our hearts, He's welcome in our homes, He's welcome in our communities, He's welcome in our state and our nation, and others will say Jesus isn't welcome here. And the ones who fight for Jesus not to be welcome in our federal and state and local governments, whether it's a nativity scene or whether it's a statue before the field house at Madison County High School, those who are threatened and intimidated by such, the problem is not that they're, rec- that they're rejecting Christ out there. The problem is that first, they're rejecting Christ in their hearts. And our greatest mission, our greatest task, is to share the love of Christ with them, that they may 
come to receive Christ as royalty, that they might give Him a royal reception instead of a resentful rejection. We all have that choice. Everyone, every man, woman, boy, girl, will be faced with whether or not they're going to give Christ a royal reception or a resentful rejection. And so this morning, I want us to see that the Magi provide a stark contrast to the political and religious environment of their day. Yes, even the religious environment of their day. They, they give us a different response to the coming of Jesus than Herod and the religious crowd. And they teach us something about the fact that giving is receiving. In other words, the gifts of the Magi, the gifts of the wise men, take place because they are receiving revelation. They're receiving a word from God about who Jesus is and acknowledging that. And when we give, and when we are generous toward others and toward reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're demonstrating that we've received something that is so valuable that we feel we must share it with everyone else. And so first of all, I want us to look at kind of the negative side of this story, and I want us to see the resentful rejection of the Messiah. The resentful rejection of Messiah. Notice again in verse 3 that Herod was disturbed, or some translations this morning use the word troubled, when he heard that the one who was to be king of the Jews, referred to as Messiah, not everyone understood that Messiah, that Christ, would have to go to a cross. They thought that there would be perhaps some government takeover And Herod was disturbed, he was troubled, he was literally, the word there is terrified, it was used to describe those who had had a nightmare. Those who had had these terrors in the night, Herod was experiencing that at that very moment. But it goes on to say that all Jerusalem with him. Now all Jerusalem is only a slight exaggeration, they used literary devices just like we do here in the 21st century, And so the phrase, all Jerusalem, would have perhaps been uh, reflective of those in political and those in religious leadership. We we do the same thing. Sometimes we make statements, everybody in Washington, D.C. has lost their mind, right? Well, not everybody in Washington, D.C. has lost their mind, just most of them. (laughs) Just most of the crowd, right? And so we'll say all of Washington, D.C. has just kind of gotten it all wrong. And there's some, there really are some, some, some cool people there, I'm sure, somewhere in Washington, D.C. So, so that was kind of a literary, literary device to say the religious and the political leadership of that day, they were disturbed, they were troubled. Isn't it interesting, isn't it ironic to say the least that those to whom Christ came even were troubled. Herod himself was a Jewish proselyte, probably a phony, but had claimed the Jewish faith Nonetheless, in order to serve there as king of the Jews, if you will. Now it's clear he understood that this birth was possibly the Messiah. That's why in verse 4 that we read, we gathered the scribes. He gathered the chief priests. He wanted to get information. And then in verse 5, they are answering that he was born in Bethlehem. And then we have this messianic prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
you're not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So it's clear that this threatened Herod's own kingdom agenda. He became nervous and troubled about this. Interestingly, this prophecy even predicts the kind of leadership Messiah would lead with. He wouldn't be like a tyrant like many of the kings of that day. But he would shepherd. He would be a caregiver. He would minister to the hearts of the people and lead them lovingly. He would shepherd the people of Israel. The example that King David had set, one who shepherded with integrity and with the skill of his hands, he would lead as a shepherd king. We also see his insincere motives. Many in the religious crowd even today have the same insincere motives. Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he asked them about when the star had appeared. Then he sent them on to Bethlehem and told them to search for the child. And he says that I may come and worship Him also. There are churches across our land today filled with insincere worshipers. And next Sunday there will be even more people that are insincere in their faith. They, they say, you know what, it's Christmas or it's Easter or it's Mother's Day. I've got to go to worship on this day. It's part of the agenda. And they're not sincerely in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're just going through the motions. Well, this was nothing more than mere words for Herod. It wasn't real. It wasn't authentic. In his heart, he was resentful of the things of God that were happening around him. And there are many in our world today that have a bitter spirit at Christmas time. They can't enjoy all that's going on around them because they're resentful. And if there is a God, they don't want to know that God. They don't want to love that God. They don't want to truly worship that God. It's a resentful rejection of Messiah. And others are just very honest, very open, very public about it. And they'll let you know if there is a God. They don't want to know that God. They don't want to worship that God. They don't want to love Him intimately. We see these insincere motives. She says, I may come and worship Him. The irony in this passage even grows when we see that pagan astronomers are coming to worship while Jerusalem religious and political leaders are rejecting and resentful of the possible coming. Even that fulfills prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3 says that He was despised and rejected among men. That He would be despised. That the coming of Messiah, that the coming of Christ, He would be despised and rejected. At His birth was just the beginning. Eventually this would lead to a cross where even His own would be involved in having Him executed. John chapter 1, verses 11-12 says, He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power, the right to become the sons and the daughters, the children of God. We might ask, why were they so fearful of something that could be so good? Do you realize there is actually something called euphobia? Euphobia is the fear of good news. Anybody got euphobia here? People that just can't celebrate when something good's happening. They hear good news and they think it's the worst of news. People with euphobia 
can only get excited about chaos and disaster because they say, when everything's going wrong, that's the only constant, that's the only thing that can be trusted. So they get real nervous, people who have euphobia, a, a real psychiatric condition. People who have euphobia, when they hear good news, they begin trembling, they struggle with nausea, they begin weeping. When they hear good news, when, it, when good things are happening, they begin to have panic attacks because it rattles the negative status quo that people have come to expect and accept. I don't know if Herod had euphobia, but certainly here they were rejecting and, and, and resentful of good news. They, they weren't embracing it. A lot of people reject Him today. I believe it's for the same reasons. We, we feel that Christ threatens our own agenda. If Jesus is Messiah and I celebrate Christmas as the birth of God the Son who became man to dwell among us and to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for my sins and rise again on the third day, if I accept the story, the true story of Christmas, then I've got to change. I've got to reprioritize my life. I've got to make Jesus first place. I've got to sell out to Him and make Him number one. As a matter of fact, if I accept this Christmas message and Jesus truly was the Messiah, everything He claimed to be and did all that He came to do, then, then I've got to live my life in a way that my friends and family members might think I'm a fanatic, and I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I'm ready to let go of a few things in my life. I don't know if I'm ready to worship Him like these magi. I don't know if I'm ready to, to leave all and, and follow Him. So we have to change and reprioritize our life. We have to worship Him and give Him our all if He is truly the Messiah. So there are many who, who have this resentful rejection of Christmas and the birth of the Messiah. They don't understand that it's in giving that we gain all. It's in giving our hearts and our lives. And listen, before anyone would come this morning to give a gift for local missions, or to place a gift in this basket for international missions, but before we would do that, I would pray that all of you would first give your heart and give your life to Jesus Christ who gave Himself for you. That's the starting point. And that's when we, we, we think, well, if I give myself away, if I give myself to God, th then I don't call the shots anymore. No, but the One who created you, the One who designed you, the One who created life to be at its very best is the One who will take charge of your life and will give you a full and abundant life. John 10, 10 says, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Christ said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. People that have euphobia today might be those people who are afraid to give their lives to Jesus Christ because they're afraid they're going to miss out on something. And they don't understand that in not giving their life to Jesus Christ, they're missing out on everything. People that you go to school with, people you work with, people in your neighborhood that can't sell out to Him afraid of what they're going to miss out on if they do, are missing out on everything God had intended for them and life at its best. But it doesn't have to be that way. Secondly, we see the royal reception of Messiah. We don't have to follow the example of Herod and the, the, the rulers of that day. We can follow the example of these magi that came from the east. Likely they had Daniel's prophecies. Often, it says they were following a, a star. We don't know how many there were because there were three gifts. We sing songs like We Three Kings, but we know that these were three astronomers, three wise men. They, I mean, we, they, were, they were wise men. We don't know that there were three, but we know that they came from the east, probably with a, a fairly significant entourage of people that would travel with them. 
And it was common in that day for such an entourage to go forth and a future king was born when they knew that someone was in line for the crown. But this one was a little different. And if they had had access in their, perhaps the Babylonian region, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And Daniel and the Hebrew children who were taken into captivity? That was in the east when Daniel penned prophecies that predicted even the coming and the cutting off of Messiah. Several hundred years before Jesus would come, Daniel would predict His coming that all hinged on the decree to go back for, for, for Israel to be uh, restored from captivity and leading up through the different political regimes that would be in control and then in the midst of this Roman Empire for Messiah to come. And so perhaps they had His prophecies. They were looking for a star. You know, general revelation is something we learn even in this passage. General revelation can only take you so far. What do you mean by that? Let me get theological on you just for a moment. When we use the phrase general revelation, we're talking about how God reveals Himself to us in creation, in nature, in history, in the stars. Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1 says, The stars are, are, are the heavens proclaim the glory of the Lord, and the stars declare His handiwork. And so whether you're in the North Georgia mountains in the fall, or down by the coast, or like my family last night as... Uh, Tina grabbed Kent and I and said, y'all got to go outside with me and look at the stars. There was a meteor shower going on. Who all saw the meteor shower last night? All right, a few of you saw the meteor shower. I mean, I've seen meteor showers before, but it was usually like, you know, one star, uh, one shooting star every five or ten minutes. But last night, they were just like, man, there's one, there's one. There's a beautiful meteor shower. And even in that, and I realize shooting stars aren't really stars, right? They're meteors. But even in that, God is revealing His glory and His beauty, His fireworks shows are better than the ones man can put together. And so God speaks through all of His creation. It's general revelation. General revelation is not enough to bring us all the way to Jesus. We need special revelation. We need, by special revelation, we're talking about the infallible Word of God and the Son of God and everything the Word of God says about the Son of God in this book. Special revelation. The incarnation of Christ the speaking of truth in His Word. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we read that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But it goes on in that passage that says, how is the world going to hear about Him if we don't go and tell? How lovely. On the hills are the feet of them that bring good news. So we're to bring forth the special revelation, the Word of God, so that people can hear. These wise men had to hear a word. They had to hear the prophecies. It's in Bethlehem of Judea. Verse 9 says, When they heard the king, they departed. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Some say this was a literal star that was 
what we would call a star today, somewhere out in the universe that was moving different ways. As a matter of fact, if you're interested in astronomy as it relates to the star of Bethlehem, some of you would really dig this. Some of you think, would think this is cool. I watched it. I'll be honest with you. I had a hard time finding flaws with it. But if you want to write this down, there's a video called The Star of Bethlehem with Rick Larson. A lot of videos out there, and some of them are kind of crazy and way out there. But Rick Larson is the one who kind of narrates this one or, or, or guides this docudrama that was kind of put together. But he gives great evidence for the fact that there was a literal star and, and the, the way that everything was moving in the universe at that time, that the, that the wise men would have been able to follow that star till it came and stood Bethlehem. Others said that it was a special, miraculous star that God placed even within our atmosphere that just kind of guided the wise men, guided the astronomers, guided these magi. Either way, it's still a miracle. Either way, it's a miracle that it all came together, but I would encourage you, I would challenge you to watch this video. It's, it's free on YouTube, by the way. The Star of Bethlehem with uh, Rick Larson. But what's the point? The point is, these were genuine seekers. They came seeking Him. They came in sincerity while Herod was insincere. And, and they came... And by the way, Jeremiah 29.13 gives us a promise Seek me, God says, and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. And I pray this morning we will be genuine seekers of Christ. The, it's, it sounds cliche, but it's true. Wise men still seek Him. But, but in verse 10, as a result of their seeking and, and finding Him, it says when they heard the, these things, verse 9 and then verse 10, they saw the star, they rejoiced the exceeding great joy, they experienced the, the joy of Christmas that so many are missing out on because they were seeking Christ. Verse 11, they came into the house. Now they get to experience His presence. By this time, it is probably several months to even over a year after Christ was born. So by the way, it's, it's, it's religiously incorrect, I guess. Biblically incorrect, if you want to put it that way. That many of our nativity scenes, including mine, will have wise men at the nativity. This was long after the nativity. But we love to have wise men in our nativities and in our Christmas dramas, so that's, that's cool. They're part of the story. They just came along much later. But, but they experienced His presence. They, they came into His house, verse 11. They saw the young child, and they fell down. They fell prostrate, consciously worshiping Him, overwhelmed by His presence. Now, Herod was not sincere. But I think of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11 that says, One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the Jesus who was born and laid in a manger is the Lord of this universe. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one who lived a sinless life, died on the cross for my sins, and rose from the grave. We can do it in this life, or we can do it when it's everlastingly too late. They presented these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these would have been common gifts given to royalty. Some pointed out that these gifts kind of parallel the things that we needed to know about Jesus. Gold represented royalty. It was always a first gift for a king. 
It also represented the divine presence of God. You think about the fact that the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, which represented the presence of God, it was overlaid with gold. And so gold was a picture that this is Messiah. This is God become man. This is royalty. And then frankincense was often used in worship. It went along with prayers to be a fragrant offering. So as people would pray and light frankincense and and burn frankincense, that the aroma would represent our prayers going to Him as a fragrant offering. Even presented sometimes with sacrifices. That Christ's sacrifice, it was a picture here, would be a fragrant offering to God. And then the myrrh, which was often used as an embalming spice. It was also mingled with vinegar to form a gall, a a potion that would stupefy someone. And you know the story that when Jesus was on the cross, that's what they offered Him. He rejected it, but this perhaps myrrh was presented here to say that this Messiah would die an agonizing death. So these gifts say a lot. They were worshiping. They were giving because giving is receiving. They were receptive of the royalty that Christ is. And the gifts were telling the story of the Gospel. And that's why we give today. We give to tell the story of the Gospel. We give to tell the story of Jesus. We give as a demonstration that we have received because God has been good to us God has saved us from sin and self, from hell and the grave forever. And as a result of that, we want to give that the Gospel may go forth. That's the royal reception. When I give my heart and my life to Jesus, when I give everything that I have for the sake of following Him and making Him known in this world.